Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the flurry of controversy around the Democratic primary race, which has once again exposed multiple rifts within the party along both ideological and gender lines. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, In the Thick!, On the Media!, Call Your Girlfriend!, The Young Turks!, and Rumble with Michael Moore!, In the final debate before the Iowa caucuses, six Democratic candidates took to the stage Tuesday night in Des Moines. For the first time this election cycle, every candidate on the stage was white. Former Vice President Joe Biden, Senators Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar, former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg and billionaire investor Tom Steyer. On Monday, New Jersey's Senator Cory Booker announced he's dropping out of the presidential race, leaving only one uh, black candidate, former Massachusetts governor Deval Patrick. Uh, but but Deval Patrick did not make the cut for this latest debate. Tuesday's debate marked the first time Senators Sanders and Warren openly sparred. At the end of the night, Warren refused to shake the hand of her longtime friend and colleague Sanders. In addition to impeachment, much of the debate focused on foreign policy. Senator Sanders warned President Trump about going to war with Iran. What we have to face as a nation is that the two great foreign policy disasters of our lifetimes were the war in Vietnam and the war in Iraq. Both of those wars were based on lies. And right now, what I fear very much is we have a president who is lying again and could drag us into a war that is even worse than the war in Iraq. You can sit first and then turn. You have left. During the during the debate, Senator Elizabeth Warren called for the U.S. war in Afghanistan to end. On Senate Armed Services Committee, we have one general after another in Afghanistan who comes in and says, you know, we've just turned the corner and now it's all going to be different. And then what happens? It's all the same for another year. Someone new comes in and we've just turned the corner. We've turned the corner so many times we're going in circles in these regions. (laughs) This has got to stop. But some of the other Democratic candidates disagreed with calls by Senators Warren and Sanders to bring U.S. troops home. This is debate moderator Wolf Blitzer. Just to be clear, uh, Vice President Biden, would you leave troops in the Middle East or would you pull them out? I would leave troops in the Middle East in terms of patrolling the Gulf, where we have to where we are now, small numbers of troops. And I think it's a mistake to pull out the straw, the small number of troops that are there now to deal with ISIS. Senator Klobuchar, what's your response? I would leave some troops there, uh, but not in the level that uh, Donald Trump is taking us right now. Uh, Afghanistan, I have long wanted to bring our troops home. I would do that. Uh, Some would remain for counterterrorism and training. In Syria, I would not have removed the 150 troops from the border with Turkey. I think that was a mistake. I think it made our allies and many others much more vulnerable to ISIS. Um, And then when it comes to Iraq right now, I would leave our troops there, despite the mess that has been created by Donald Trump. Senator Warren, 
leave combat troops, at least some combat troops in the Middle East, or bring them home? No, I think we need to get our combat troops out. You know, we have to stop this mindset that we can do everything with combat troops. Our military is the finest military on earth, and they will take any sacrifice we ask them to take. But we should stop asking our military to solve problems that cannot be solved militarily. Senator Sanders. Wolf, in America today, our infrastructure is crumbling. Half of our people are living paycheck to paycheck. 87 million people have no health care or are uninsured, underinsured. We've got 500,000 people sleeping out on the streets tonight. The American people are sick and tired of endless wars, which have cost us trillions of dollars. Our job is to rebuild the United Nations, rebuild the State Department, make sure that we have the capability of bringing the world together to resolve international conflict diplomatically and stop the endless wars that we have experienced. We turn now to Phyllis Bennis, fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, written a number of books, including Understanding the U.S.-Iran Crisis. Phyllis, your overall response is uh, basically they opened up on the issue of foreign policy last night in the final debate before the Iowa caucus. Thanks, Amy. You know, I think one of the things that was important to see last night was that all of the Democratic candidates, including the right wing of the of the group, as well as the progressives, as well as Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, were vying with each other essentially to see who could be more critical of the Iraq war. They all have said that at various points. But last night, it was very overt that this was a, a critical point of unity for these candidates. Now, whether that says much about the prospects for the Democratic Party is not so clear. But I thought that was a, a, an important advance, that there's a recognition of where the entire base of half this country is, which is strongly against wars. And those two clips that you just used from Elizabeth Warren and from Bernie Sanders, I think, spoke to where there are those differences between the progressive side and the others, where you have from Sanders and Warren a clear sense that it's not only about what are we going to do specifically right now about Afghanistan, what are we going to do specifically around Iran, those questions, they, they address those as well. But the broader questions, when, when uh, Elizabeth Warren spoke about recognizing that there are not military solutions for every problem, that's been the tendency of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party for the last 20-plus years. When Bernie Sanders said that the focus is on the cost of these wars, and it's not the right use of our money. That was important. Now, of course, in both cases, they could have gone further. They could have made a specific reference to uh, using half the military budget, for example, $350 billion, which is half the military budget, using that to pay for a Green New Deal, Medicare for all, free college education, all of the various social programs that there was debate about where's the money going to come from. All of them in the past, it's, it's interesting, you know, one of the things that was not pushed by the moderators is the fact that back in June, all of the Democratic candidates uh, who were asked the question in a, a uh, forum that was sponsored by the Poor People's Campaign were asked, would you cut the military budget specifically? Every one of them said yes. And yet none of the journalists are pushing them to say, OK, we've established you will cut the military budget. Let's talk specifics. How much would you cut? Would you use the the decision about which 
programs to cut to, as something you would tell us now? Where would the money go? Nobody's pushing them to remind them that that was a commitment that they made. So there are some problems. But I think that it was important that we saw these very clear and strong uh, positions. Now, on the specifics, I think there were some serious limitations in two ways. On the one hand, on the specific question of withdrawing troops, everybody basically said, I would leave troops. Elizabeth Warren said, I would withdraw all the combat troops. We have to recognize combat troops are not the ones who have been killing people probably since about 2011. The killing of civilians in particular is being carried out by special forces, by bombing, by drones. We heard the same thing from various other candidates, all of whom said they would leave some behind. And the question is, when we start saying, we're going to pull out the combat troops, in a sense, that's the easier part. It's the larger numbers in most cases, but it's not the troops that are actually carrying out the very violent activities that are continuing to kill children and women and old people in and around Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq—sorry, uh, not in Iran yet—in uh, Iraq, in Syria, in Somalia, in other countries, with these bombings and other special forces activities, with the assassination. That was carried out by special forces uh, with drones, not by combat troops. So withdrawing combat troops is a, an important step. It's not really enough. The and, other point that uh, I think was Phyllis. where we, we saw just one—just one other point— we saw a limitation in terms of the issue of American exceptionalism across the board, and particularly, of course, from the more centrist candidates. But it really across the board, there was a focus on what's going to happen to Americans, American jobs, American soldiers. We didn't hear about human rights in the rest of the world, even on a day after a U.S. citizen had been uh, had died in custody as a political prisoner in Egypt. We didn't hear about the rights of people in these countries. And that, I think, is something that we in the social movements need to be pressing all the candidates much more firmly. And uh, Phyllis, I wanted to ask you, in terms of the fact this was billed as uh, focusing so much on foreign policy, there were a lot of foreign policy questions that did not come up at all. Uh, Israel-Palestine uh, uh, situation, right. the uh, the attempt by the the Trump administration at regime change in Venezuela, uh, the relations with Saudi Arabia, or even uh, policy, the Trump administration policy toward Ukraine and Russia. Right. There were huge laps, lapses. I think it was inevitable and perhaps even appropriate that the main focus was on the question of wars, the global war on terror, although that term wasn't used, because that's been the urgency of recent days and recent weeks. That's where U.S. troops are deployed and are responsible for the deaths of people around the world. That's where the vast majority of money, 53 cents out of every federal discretionary dollar, goes to the military. So in all of those ways, it was perhaps appropriate to keep the main focus on the issues of the existing wars, but obviously leaving out the question of Israel-Palestine, policy towards, towards Russia, towards Ukraine, all of Latin America, all of Africa were left out of the debate, out of the equation. Human rights was, was left out of the equation. And that's—those th are huge problems. And there's the assumption that somehow it's okay for people to be running for president as centrists or as progressives and not necessarily have to talk about that every time they talk 
about what it means to be the president. They talked some about what it means to be the commander-in-chief. They didn't talk enough about what it means to be the diplomat-in-chief. There were references—Bernie Sanders referenced, Elizabeth Warren referenced uh, uh, the need for more diplomacy. Others did as well. Nobody talked about the fact that Trump has left the State Department completely diminished, that massive numbers of people have left the State Department, the professionals, not the political appointees, have left the State Department. So at any point when somebody says, oh, finally, we need to get back to diplomacy, will there be any competent diplomats ready and able to carry that out? So there were huge questions that were not addressed. But I think this was a a turning point moment in the campaign in the sense of the understanding from all the candidates that they had to take seriously the question of their position, not only on the the past wars, which was important, watching Biden immediately say, I was wrong, although he went on to say that he would do essentially some of the same things, but recognizing that it was also important to have positions not as specific as they should have been, not clarifying that, for example, sanctions are an act of war and not an alternative to war. Nobody called them on that. Nobody called them out on the lack of focus on international law and the role of the United Nations. Although Bernie Sanders spoke about rebuilding the United Nations, I'm not even sure that he meant to say the U.N. rather than the U.S., but he did say the U.N. Our, one of our jobs is to rebuild the U.N. That was important. But all of these things are missing. But it seems to me it was a way in because all of the candidates referenced in different ways and with different integrity, let's say. But many reference the question of the role of movements being important. And I think that's something that we, outside of the political arena, have to take very seriously. These folks are not going to move further than we push them to move. At the end of the day, it comes back to the movements outside, not just what the candidates say on the debate stage. Very few talked about the fact that right now the Senate has in front of it a new War Powers Act uh, that would focus on Iran. Pete Buttigieg said we need a new War Powers Act. That's wrong. But we're going to need a movement to say we need to have the end of the existing authorizations for the use of military force, not new ones, get rid of the old ones and stop authorizing illegal wars. In the 2016 election, only a small fraction of eligible Latino voters showed up to the caucus. So if they turn out next month, the impact could be powerful. All right, Wise, when we hear about the Iowa caucuses, we hear about uh, how white the state is, which it is. Um, there are candidates engaging Latinos and other communities of color there. So what do you think about Iowa, the POC vote, the Latino vote? Um, how is this going to impact anything or, or, or just the primary season in general? You know, what frustrates me all the time is this coded language of the Rust Belt. And Rust Belt means white workers. It means white male workers, right? Or electability, it means white men. Or ordinary, it means white people. And they forget that there's a lot of people of color, a lot of Latinos and African-Americans and South Asians and women workers in the Rust Belt in the Midwest that if they come out to vote... 
That could be the game changer, especially for the Democratic primary, where as of the latest polls, it's neck and neck, right? Yeah. It's one poll has Sanders up, one poll has Biden up. But if we, within the margin of error, it's Warren, Sanders, Biden and Buttigieg. So if the Latino uh, population comes out and they coalesce around like a specific candidate, that could be the game changer, guys, in Iowa. Yeah, I have to agree. I think that. You know, people are right when they say that Iowa is a really white state to start the primary. But that said, there are significant POC populations there. And I think that a smart campaign would really be trying to mobilize those voters, because, as you said, I think that those could be the key to swing or really neck and neck race. Here's the thing. Are we like, but Arnica, just from what I've seen in the coverage, it's literally like Tuesday's debate is six white people, two women, no Andrew Yang. You know, Tulsi Gabbard, like the only two candidates of color left. And I would say that Andrew Young's probably the only like viable candidate. What the hell happened with the diversity of this field? What what do you think happened? You know, in the end, I think it comes down to money. It comes down to resources and what kind of resources people are able to pull. As we know in this country, as in many other places, class and race are really intimately tied to each other. And with that comes networks and access to networks of wealth, right? And I think that candidates of color really struggle with that. And I think when we're trying to think about solutions of that, I think that we need to think really specifically and systemically around how we fund elections more broadly, right? We have somebody like Michael Bloomberg, who is a bumbling (laughs) idiot and just has billions of dollars to just fund his campaign at his own leisure. I think that's disgusting and absurd. I think there should be limits. I think that campaigns should be publicly funded exclusively. All this money that's being spent on elections just, first of all, is sort of a waste. And second, just really replicates this ability of candidates who are more connected to wealth, who are inevitably going to be a wider set of people, you know, to be able to thrive. And and I think that we just need to look really several steps back and systemically think about how we fund elections in the first place if we're going to really get a, a more diverse set of candidates that are really viable. Tonight, Family Feud. Progressive Democratic presidential contenders Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren sparring over questions of gender and electability. And Family Feud. Going into tonight's Democratic debate, the last before Iowa, a fight breaks out between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. The rare progressive family feud coming after Senator Elizabeth Warren confirmed reports that during a private conversation with Senator Bernie Sanders in 2018, he told her a woman could not beat President Trump. The de facto non-aggression pact between the two progressive senators seems to be out the door. last weekend when Politico reported that the Sanders campaign had given some volunteers a script with talking points for winning away voters who were leaning toward other candidates, including Warren. Then CNN reported its bombshell. 
Sanders told Warren he did not believe a woman could win, according to four sources, two people Warren spoke with directly and two others familiar with the meeting. The gossip that routinely stands in for actual election news, like one of those tasty pirouette cookies that melts in your mouth, leaving nothing behind but a sugary residue. CNN made much of its nothing. Anderson, there is no question that we've seen debates before. We've not seen a debate like this. We are just about an hour away. Will tension between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders finally boil over? That's the big question. That is what everyone is waiting to see. As The debate was two hours long, the last before the Iowa caucus. But for CNN, it was all about that last 17 seconds. They had a moment after the debate. Warren left Bernie Sanders hanging when he tried to shake her hand, and that was followed by a brief but tense exchange, including Sanders' hand gestures and a return of a gesture there from Elizabeth Warren. What could the silent gestures have meant? Politico got a body language expert to do a move-by-move analysis of their exchange. News outlets noted that hashtag NeverWarren had begun trending on Twitter. There were Bernie supporters who were lighting up Twitter yesterday with anti-Warren hashtags. It wasn't trending because a critical mass of voters were turning on Warren, but because the algorithm had picked up on users cautioning one another from tweeting the hashtag. Like a finger trap, the harder progressives tried to de-escalate, the more the feuding seemed to spread, drawing more eyeballs, more clicks. And then, just as the post-debate news cycle had reached its natural crescendo, CNN released audio of the handshake snub during Anderson Cooper's primetime slot. I think you called me a liar on national TV. I think you called me a liar on national TV. Let's not do it right now. You want to have that discussion, we'll have that Anytime. discussion. You called me. You told me. All right, let's not do it now. It was a soup to nuts CNN win, a well-timed, anonymously sourced piece that produced days of TV drama. But did the feud tell us anything new about Sanders or Warren or how they govern? And given our country's history of misogyny, was it even sexist for Sanders, if he really said it, to suggest that a female candidate faced insurmountable odds. Writing in the cut this week, Rebecca Traster says the question, though dispiriting, is inevitable. Can we acknowledge that in a country that has only elected male presidents throughout its history, that gender is a factor both in all of the elections of men that have preceded us and is a factor that's going to shape the path of female candidates in such a way that it certainly had an impact on Hillary Clinton in 2016. But it's like people then, when they get to the point where they can acknowledge that, speed right by it and get to, well, it's impossible. We'll never be able to elect a woman because everything's so sexist. It's somewhere in that middle ground that we are right now. Warren, until now, hasn't directly taken on questions of whether she as a woman is electable. I have been watching her framing of gender with tremendous interest. She gave her opening speech in Lawrence, Massachusetts, talking about young women who organized in the textile mills in Lawrence and Lowell, Massachusetts, in the early 19th century. On January 11th, 1912, a group of women who worked right here at the Everett Mill discovered that their bosses had cut their pay. And that was it. The women said, enough is enough. 
She gave a big speech in Washington Square Park in New York in the summer about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and the kind of organizing and striking that had preceded the fire there, and then specifically about Frances Perkins, Mm -hmm. who um, had witnessed that fire and then went on to work in Roosevelt's cabinet and Without talking about herself, she was making a not-so-subtle comparison between how a woman can look at systems that are broken and then move inside a system and fix what's broken. And it does two things. It enables a feminist approach to her historic presidential campaign without having to engage the incredible tinderbox that is about her own experiences of bias or sexism. And you said... All that's over now. We're in the muck. Sure are. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's that's done. Because then on Monday, CNN reported that in 2018, multiple sources say, none of whom were Warren or Sanders, that in a private conversation, Sanders told Warren he didn't believe a woman could win. When he was asked about this during the debate, he was emphatic. It's incomprehensible that I would think that a woman could not be president of the United States. Go to YouTube today. One of the things that Sanders' campaign has said in its defense in in this conversation is, here, look at these videos of Bernie Sanders talking in 1987 to school children, third graders. You, just as much as the boys, have a right to become president. There's not been a woman president. And then in 1988, telling C-SPAN, of course a woman can be president. There's a difference between saying in 1987 and 1988 that in theory... Yes, of course, a woman can be president. And the question of a woman running against Donald Trump. And I can absolutely imagine a scenario where Bernie Sanders says he's going to throw everything at you. He's going to drag you through the mud. And Warren says, so do you think any woman can beat him? And I can Mm -hmm. imagine him not thinking that he was giving any kind of definitive prediction and it hitting her like a ton of bricks because it's Mm -hmm. her prospects that her friend and colleague and feminist is describing. When she ran in Massachusetts for the Senate seat that was then occupied by the very popular Republican Scott Brown, she told me in in the summer of 2018, just a few months before this dinner with Bernie Sanders, how clearly she remembered the progressives, her friends who called her and said, you can run for this, but you should know that a woman is never going to win in Massachusetts. Scott Brown Mm -hmm. had beaten another female candidate, Martha Coakley, to win his seat in 2010. Massachusetts had a terrible record of electing women in politics prior to Elizabeth Warren, and Warren was so frustrated. So it doesn't surprise me at all that if there was a conversation which Bernie Sanders might legitimately not have thought he was offering any definitive prediction of doom, but she being very sensitive to all the ways in which she's been told women can't do this in the past, heard it. I think people have exchanges like that all the time in which meaning is extracted differently. But Twitter's gone bananas. Yes, of course it has. This is the first time in my life that there has been this kind of competition in a presidential context between two such left-leaning politicians. And people are driven by their passions for these politicians. And it's been a very tricky proposition for Warren and Sanders fans because they went in with a kind of truce, and yet they both want to win. But the complaint that I had about Bernie's response was he said, no one in this room thinks a woman can't win the presidency. No one says that. And that is simply not true. Excuse me while I jump in on this. This is very rare. I I don't usually interrupt the show, much less a clip. 
to make a correction because if something's wrong with a clip, it usually just doesn't get used. But we're listening to Rebecca Tracer. She's one of the feminist writers who I respect the most. I've read her most recent book. I am excited every time I see her name listed as an interviewee on a podcast. She is one of the most on point and nuanced speakers on feminist issues in the media and public eye today. That said, she has misstepped because I believe that she either misheard or misremembered what she heard said on the debate stage, and it's what she just referred to. So just a quick refresher. The complaint that I had about Bernie's response was he said, no one in this room thinks a woman can't win the presidency. No one says that. And that is simply not true. Okay, now we're going to hear more from her on that topic in in just a minute. But first, we're going to hear what Bernie actually said and compare the two. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by three million votes. How could anybody in a million years not believe that a woman could become president of the United States? Now, the difference between these two may sound small, but I really don't think it is. I think they are dramatically different from one another. Rebecca's framing is that Bernie is putting a huge set of rose-colored glasses on the situation and implying that there isn't sexism that is preventing women from being elected president, and that, frankly, no one even believes that women can't be elected president. That is not what he is saying. He is using the evidence that we have from the 2016 election to point out that it is incorrect to believe that a woman couldn't be elected president, and that with the help of the Clinton-Trump election, that should be all the evidence we need to dispel the myth that a woman couldn't be elected, and that anyone who has that mistaken belief should be corrected. So Rebecca Tracer is going to go on on this topic for you know another minute or so, and what she is saying about her own premise is correct. She is right on point with what she is saying if it were applied to someone else who had said what she said Bernie said. It just so happens he didn't say it. So the good news is, in my perspective, that Rebecca Traster, one of the most respected feminist writers in the country at the moment, especially by me, said that the only problem she had with Bernie's response was something that he actually didn't say or do. Was he said, no one in this room thinks a woman can't win the presidency. No one says that. And that is simply not true. As a feminist journalist who has written about this for years, I have had thousands of conversations with people, some of whom are like jerky sexists or whatever, but most of whom are fellow feminists who are deeply worried about this question. And by the way, I absolutely believe that a woman can be elected president in 2020. I believe that there is every chance in the world that Elizabeth Warren could be elected president in 2020. But the thing that is not true is that no one would say that. We have never managed to do it before, and women are more than half of the population. The only way we ever will elect a woman 
is if we all decide we want to elect a particular candidate who is a woman and we get over the fears that we can't do it. I mean, that's the catch-22 here, is the more this question guides our thinking, the more it becomes self-fulfilling prophecy because we worry about it so much that we reach for what looks like the past that we know we have elected in the past, Mm -hmm. like Joe Biden, who's literally been in power for five decades. After Bernie made his statements, the moderator turned to Warren and said, Senator Warren, what did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? (laughs) As if Sanders had never spoken at all. So I thought the phrasing of that question, which just took as gospel Warren's recollection and openly rebuffed what Bernie Sanders had just said, was really irresponsible. I also thought it was bad for both of them. It is obviously bad for Bernie because the moderators who are framing the terms of this discussion, in that moment, they're not even registering his differing view of events. So it's obviously bad for Bernie in that way. But it is also bad for Warren because, of course, Bernie's fans hear that, understand it to be a sign that he is being victimized in this. And these are the dynamics that are so perilous whenever you have a conversation about sexism. The power dynamics are so easily reversed so that the marginalized person becomes the aggressor and the person who in any way is asserted to profit from marginalization becomes the attacked. And so the fact that Bernie is in fact treated badly by CNN becomes more evidence that he has been wronged in this situation. And that's not good for Warren. But we also need to talk about the timing of the CNN piece. And and I want to do this without in any way impugning MJ Lee, who is a terrific reporter who wrote mm-hmm. the piece and has been a great reporter on the Warren beat. But the, the timing, timing <laughs> of a piece, it didn't come out of a conversation that happened on Sunday. It didn't have to be published right now. There was a choice made by CNN to publish it on Monday, before a Wednesday debate that was aired on CNN that published the piece. The ratings for the debates have declined. The first one drew 18 million. The last one drew a little over 6 million. CNN got 7.3 million for this one. I don't think there's any way to say that There wasn't thinking that this is going to draw attention. We can't take a look at all of this that's happening between the candidates and assume it's just happening in nature. I was not eager to talk about this whole exchange between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, wherein uh, he claims that he was just like, listen, it's going to be hard for anyone to beat Trump because he's real bad. And will you go, you know, say say dirty, terrible things about any aspect of your identity that he can. And Elizabeth Warren heard, I don't think a woman is going to be elected president in this country, um, or says that is what was conveyed. I am of the camp that much like many things in which meaning is as much inferred as it is like overt and like on the table, that they both are 
probably 100% secure in like, this is exactly what I heard slash this is exactly what I said. And also that they are both right, which is to say that like, my feeling has always been like the biggest barrier to a woman becoming president is people thinking no one else will vote for a woman. Like the statistics are essentially women. There's a CNN poll from this week in that shows women saying 20% of women saying a woman cannot win and only 9% of men saying a woman cannot win. And that is like partially rooted in some truth. Women being like, we know that when push comes to shove, like men don't think specific women are up to this job. But I also think that there's just this sense of like despair that has set in and rightfully so. And, um, and it's easier to kind of externalize that despair on everyone else rather than say, like, I personally wouldn't do this. I mean, I 100% agree with you. And, uh, you know, friend of the pod, Rebecca Tracer, mm-hmm. wrote about this, I thought, in a really smart way in the cut. And the gist of her piece, which I thought was so, um, you know, is basically the point that you're making, is that worrying that it will make it tough for women in politics, like thinking that doesn't make someone sexist, which is, you know, what Bernie Sanders is saying. Right. That's different from saying I won't vote for a woman. Right. Right. Yeah. That is different. It's not sexist. And I, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, they're both right. Mm -hmm. So worrying that women are going to have a hard time in politics doesn't make Bernie Sanders sexist. But for women to hear every day, like for them to hear those worries all of the time and to metabolize them and also to see how discouraging it is, doesn't make uh, Elizabeth Warren a liar. And so it's a very kind of interesting conversation to have because you're right. Everyone kind of imbues their own meaning into what they're talking about. But at the same time, this conversation to me is fascinating because it's obviously happening on the left. And to have so many people on the left, like cry that you know their candidate is being called a sexist and that he's a misogynist and blah 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 which is clearly not all that's going on here is that worries me in terms of like i'm like if we are not getting this conversation right you we're not going to get this conversation right in a national election and i think that rebecca's point also that was like something that i haven't stopped thinking about and it's this like line that she wrote in the article about how um talking in any kind of honest way about marginalization becomes a trap for the marginalized Mm -hmm. is something that is so like that has stayed with me since, since I read this, because to me, that is like the crux of the matter. It's why can you like, and by you, I mean like we, why can we not be honest about how things are hard for people? Like no one is calling anyone sexist or misogynist. I'm like, we actually have the words for that. And when we want to call you sexist or misogynist, we can just do that. But I think that it's so silly on its face to make women feel that it's not going to be hard for them to be president for reasons that have nothing to do with personality. And that it's, it's hard. If it wasn't hard, we would already had a woman president. And it's also hard to have this conversation and not think of the, the backdrop of the last election, right? Where everybody was very much like, here are the specific problems with Hillary Clinton. And they have all of their own feelings about that and not recognizing also that the reason that that woman gets to be the first woman who can run in a real way for president is because she's a circumstance of the of uh, every way that like sexism has shaped politics in her time. Of course, you have to be married to like a former president to run as the first woman president. Of course, you have to have this kind of access. Of course, it's not a coincidence that the next woman who's running for president is literally a teacher and like sounds like Tracy Flick. I was like, these are the ways that women accede to power. If it was not the case, we would be having a different kind of conversation altogether. 
Yeah. And it's funny when, when you said last election, I was actually, I have been thinking a lot more about how 2008 felt specifically when you made that comment about how pointing out this kind of deep bias and unfairness, like always does not work out well for the people who are actually <laughs> suffering as a result of that bias and unfairness. It made me think of an essay that Adam Serwer wrote back in 2008 about Barack Obama and about how any attempt to point out not even like people as racist, but like pointing out like like tropes as racist or pointing out comments as like racist or pointing out assumptions as racist immediately became a negative thing against Obama. And um, and he, mm -hmm. he wrote something very astute, which is that like, you know, when the narrative is dominated by white people and the common white experience is of being accused of, of racism as opposed to like experiencing like the hurt and pain of actually being on the receiving end of it, it is going to be the default of the discourse to kind of say like, oh, what about the the horrible experience of being accused? And it, like I've been thinking about that a lot with relation to this like Warren and Sanders thing where it's like immediately, it cannot be, as you said, a conversation that is like a really serious reckoning with the messages that women are giving about, given about their electability. It has to immediately become a defense that like Bernie isn't sexist in the same way that like a lot of those conversations when people pointed out things that were fucked up about how Obama was being described or treated were immediately characterized as how dare you call someone racist as a result of this? It, it feels like it is not an exact parallel, but like that, I have been thinking a lot about that piece and about like 2008 in particular. Um, because man. <laughs> One thing that I've been particularly frustrated by is that basically pop culture stan culture is what is happening in politics also. People are just like stands of their candidates. And I was like, well, Actually, you should be deeply distrustful of anyone who is running for president just because they're running for president. Running for president is corny. Um, and one of these people is going to save us, but you cannot believe in them so much that you don't see something that's wrong in either of them. Like, none of these candidates are perfect. Right, like, keep um, your critical faculties th about you. <laughs> I know, but people don't. And I'm talking about, like, on the left. You know what I mean? This is not a... Forget the other side. Like, that has been, like, really wild to to just... to take in. And it's one of those things I was like, if you're an Elizabeth Warren fan and Bernie Sanders wins, that's obviously the America you want to live in. And if you're a Bernie Sanders fan and Elizabeth wins, that is also an America you want to live in. It's not the best America that you could have either way. Like, I'm sure that that's how people feel. But I'm like, wouldn't you want to live in either of those Americas better than you want to live in the America that you have right now? Probably. So that's one thing that's always been baffling to me. But also just this idea that just on its face that women cannot talk about the electability issue as it is and that there's not like a narrative around that that and to be fair that narrative about around electability is not shaped by politicians it's not shaped by bernie sanders it's not even shaped by donald trump it's shaped by the media and so thinking about how we cannot have these like constructive and critical conversations and how that's a problem actually for the future of all of our ideas and the future of what we want the country to be is it just it concerns me greatly it's funny, I actually thought you were going to end that sentence slightly differently because it definitely is related to the media, but I, I would have finished that sentence with is because of like the lived everyday experience of sexism and how entrenched it is. And it's like when I, I really just think back 
Like when I saw that CNN poll that was like 20% of women say a woman can't win versus 9% of men say a woman can't win is because men are not on the receiving end of the kind of subtle and pervasive sexism that women are. And and like, right. yeah, and really, but, yeah, I, I, but, but I mean, sorry, no, ahead. but I guess I, I just want to say that like, and it's that lived experience of saying like, I have not ascended to the job I'm capable of in my own workplace or my home it features an unequal division of labor, like that kind of really deep personal knowledge of the ways in which um, there is still not gender equality in this country. Like that is an informing factor as much as like how are women talked about or like what Bernie Sanders did or didn't say. A new Hillary Clinton docu-series on Hulu reminds Americans why she continues to be such a polarizing political figure. In an interview with The Hollywood Reporter to accompany the information or the news of this docu-series, Hillary Clinton took several jabs at Bernie Sanders. Of course, really? this is what you can expect. Now, um, this is something that I knew was eventually going to happen. And she is now even more aggressive than she was previously when it comes to uh, these jabs at Bernie. So let me tell you exactly what's going on. Now, Lacey Rose over at the Hollywood Reporter wrote in the doc, you're brutally honest with Sanders. And then he, she quotes Hillary Clinton as saying, he was in Congress for years. He had one senator support him. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. He's got nothing done. He was a career politician. Weird flex there. Uh, it's also, it's all just baloney. And I feel so bad that people got sucked into it. And then the reporter asks, that assessment still hold? And here's what she says. Yes, it does. I just want to remind you of what 538 published in March of 2016. Just a quick screenshot of an important headline, Americans distaste for both Trump and Clinton is record breaking. Yeah. So after the election, if you guys can recall, there was a poll indicating that Bernie Sanders was the most popular politician in America, the most liked. And there's a reason for that. It's because he actually focused on issues that matter to them. Yeah, so um, there is a part of her statement that's right though. Oh, That's interesting. Well, when she says nobody likes him, nobody wants to work with him, understand who she's referring to. Mm -hmm. Now, why would you work with Bernie Sanders? You know, if you're a dentist or an accountant out there, I mean, you don't have much of an opportunity. No, she's not referring to you. She's referring to people in Washington, people with power. And that is true. The people in power don't like Bernie Sanders because he points out their corruption. In fact, he barely points it out, but he does. He embarrasses them by not taking any of the corporate money that they do. He talks about income inequality. Their donors love income inequality and further income inequality. And so do those corrupt Democratic politicians. So when she said nobody likes him, she means nobody in Washington, nobody in the club likes Bernie Sanders. Now, that is not a problem for Bernie Sanders. That's why Bernie Sanders is so popular in the rest of the country. Another thing that Hillary Clinton is doing is calling all of you guys nobodies. Exactly. I mean, the reality is he's the most popular politician, first of all, in the country, second of all, in the Democratic Party. So she's just telling all the Democratic voters, you don't mean anything, you're a nobody. So you don't even exist. So I, when I talk about Bernie Sanders and no one liking him, you don't count. 
The huge, huge percentage of the American population doesn't count. The only people who count are my buddies in the in power in Washington. All of you nobodies can go away. What well, I am a nobody and I'm proud to support Bernie Sanders. What she doesn't realize, and this is a good thing, is that she unwittingly put out the best possible endorsement for him, right? Because in saying that nobody in the elitist class that she rubs elbows with, that none of them like him. She's essentially giving everyone who already supports him or is considering supporting him more of a reason to stick by his side. Because what people are frustrated with, and one of the reasons why so many people actually went out and voted for Donald Trump, a con artist, is because he positioned himself as an outsider, someone who was anti-establishment. In saying that Bernie Sanders is not well liked within the establishment, Hillary Clinton is weirdly helping to garner support for him. But they don't think so. Everybody in the media, instead of saying, whoa, that is so divisive. Whenever a progressive speaks out against another Democrat, they're like, divisive, divisive, what happened? Now Hillary Clinton tries to torpedo the leading Democrat in the race. He's leading in Iowa, New Hampshire, California, and very close to Nevada. All of a sudden, she's not divisive. Now remember, her supporters back in 2008 when she lost to Barack Obama, uh, were called Pumas. Why? It stood for party unity, my ass. So Oops. she's back to party unity, my ass, but no one in the media calls her out. Instead, they're like, bravo, we all agree. No one in power, including us, like him. I mean, the New York Times editorial board, a story we'll get to later, referred to Bernie Sanders as divisive at least twice in their endorsement for two candidates, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. Again, we'll get to that later. But let me give you more from this interview with The Hollywood Reporter. Now, Bernie Sanders did respond to Hillary Clinton saying that he is not well liked. And according to an NBC reporter, I just asked Senator Sanders for his reaction to Hillary Clinton saying no one likes him. And he said, quote, on a good day, my wife likes me. So let's be, so let's clear the air on that one. He then pivoted to talking about impeachment. More tonight on NBC Nightly News. Okay, so you get a sense of him kind of poking fun at this. He's not taking it too seriously. Lacey Rose then asks Hillary Clinton, if he gets the nomination, will you endorse and campaign for him? And here's what she says. And I think this is incredibly important given the pressure from the establishment to vote blue no matter what, right? You gotta get Trump out. I'm not going to go there yet. We're still in a very vigorous primary season. I will say, however, that it's not only him, it's the culture around him. It's his leadership team, it's his prominent supporters, it's his online Bernie bros and their relentless attacks on lots of his competitors, particularly the women. So Cenk, I'm gonna let you jump in in a second, but I wanna make a point about who Hillary Clinton is and how she campaigned. Because when she was campaigning against Barack Obama in 2008, she kept referring to him, her campaign kept referring to him and his supporters as sexist, it's sexist, it's sexist, okay? So before the Bernie bro uh, argument was being used by the Hillary camp, there was an Obama bro argument used by the Hillary camp. In fact, Hillary Clinton was so vicious in her campaigning against Barack Obama that this is what she did. I talked about this on a recent appearance on Cuomo. 
There's a lot of emphasis, uh, a lot of, in my opinion, uh, defamatory comments about how Bernie Sanders is allegedly running a dirty campaign. However, there isn't a single example of him talking about someone's character in a negative way or attacking someone's personality or doing any type of character assassination. All of his emphasis has been on policy <laughs> and we're in the middle of a primary. In a primary, you are supposed to emphasize the differences in policy proposals and the mere fact that he has done that has gotten him in trouble for some reason when in the past what? actual dirty politics on the left have been oh, stop. dismissed stop. i mean i mean stop, hey, come on hillary no. clinton hillary clinton released a picture of barack obama in 2008 where he's wearing a turban and it was during his trip to kenya she purposely did that in an effort what to paint him as a muslim sanders i bring that up because bernie sanders would never ever do something like that, but he still gets characterized as someone who plays dirty <laughs> politics. It's All right, disgusting. Finney. Okay, we actually have that picture, we're gonna show it to you. So Hillary's team, people later thought that the Republicans released this. No, Hillary Clinton's team released this photo like, look at Barack Hussein Obama. That's the kind of dirty politics the establishment plays. They, by the way, it was worse than Obama bros. Bernie bros is a litter. No, back then they didn't call him bros. They called him Obama boys, Jesus. which is way worse. Okay, so she's played that dirty trick a thousand times, including on Barack Obama, who she now pretends to support, but she tried to torpedo in vicious ways. So now, before we even get to the gender angle, wait. You're not gonna go there yet on supporting Bernie Sanders if he's the nominee. So that means by definition, you might not. So who would you support, Donald Trump? That's an open question for you? Of course it is. That is, that's unbelievable, after all this, yeah. it's still unbelievable. But hold on, she not only says that, but I want you to remember the context, Bernie Sanders, did 39 rallies for her after he lost, 39. She had done 12 appearances for Obama. Sanders did 39 gigantic rallies for Hillary Clinton. But no good deed goes unpunished. Now she turns around and goes, "Oh, I demanded loyalty from you. And by the way, you gave it to me. And you took some heat for it too, by the way, from some progressives. Mm -hmm. Now, it will not be returned at all. In fact, at the most crucial time, right before Iowa, I will try to sink you. For the sake of a little bit more clarification and to really make this comparison, I want to play one tiny extra snippet of Bernie's answer in the debate to the question, the question about Elizabeth Warren and whether a woman could be elected president. Not every outlet by a long shot included his entire answer when they were talking about it. They would cut it up. They would take the most relevant part. They, you know, they would usually include his strong objection, but I wanted to make sure to include how he ended his answer to that question. And let me be very clear. If any of the women on this stage or any of the men on this stage win the nomination, I hope that's not the case. I hope it's me. <laughs> but if they do, I will do everything in my power to make sure that they are elected in order to defeat the most dangerous president in the history of our country. 
The other thing I, I feel bad for Bernie about is the way, and I've heard this from many people in the last uh, three years, how they think that he didn't come out and support Hillary when he lost to her, that he didn't go out there and do what he could do to get her elected, and nothing could be further from the truth. I don't know how this lie got started. It gets repeated constantly. So I want to just give you the facts so that you have them. If you ever hear anybody bring this up, that Bernie didn't support Hillary in, in 2016. Um, you know, uh, Hillary uh, would not concede to Obama until June of that election year after the primaries were, you know, essentially over. Um, it took Bernie to July, you know, it took him a little, a little bit longer, but he wasn't holding on, not because he was opposed to Hillary. He wanted to be able to, to take his delegates to the convention and get some platforms passed, some policy passed. He also knew that if he just gave in, he had another job to do, which was to get all of his voters to vote for Hillary in the general election. And if he just gave up and gave in right from the, you know, from the end of the primaries without getting anything for it, namely getting a Democratic Party platform that was going to acknowledge certain things that, you know, Democrats oftentimes don't want to acknowledge or deal with. So he wanted to go to the convention strong with it, but he was always going to and did endorse um, Hillary and asked that his delegates then do the same. And um, But then people start saying, they, you know, if, well, he didn't go out and campaign for He didn't go out and campaign for which isn't true. And I'm going to give you the facts and I'll, I'll, I'll post these again on the site here, uh, on the rumble, uh, site. So you can uh, use these with people. So let me just go back. Let me compare what, uh, Hillary Clinton did to help Obama when she lost to him in the 2008 primaries. What did she do for him in the, in the general, um, election, uh, that year? And I have the list and the dates of, where she went and campaigned for him. Um, there were um, uh, two instances. I'm not going to talk. I'm not talking about fundraisers. No, I'm talking about like rallies for the pub, you know, public rallies to get the vote out. So there were two times, twice before the general election uh, between the, you know, the end of the primaries and then um, the election in November where she appeared with Barack Obama at a rally to help get him elected twice. Then she went out, 10 times on her own uh, between August and uh, November uh, to get people uh, to come out and uh, vote for him. So she made 10 campaign appearances to convince, especially her voters, to get out there and vote for Barack Obama. 10 rallies. In 2016, this is what Bernie did. He appeared with her three times at joint events um, around the country in the general election. And then on his own, he did 37 other events and rallies for Hillary, either, you know, solo appearances or he had a band with him or some, you know, somebody else on the stage. But these were Bernie rallies that Hillary wasn't at, that he went and did for her 37 plus the three he did with her. That's 40. She did 10 and two with Barack. She did 12. She did 12 for Barack Obama in 08. And in 2016, when he lost to Hillary, he did 40 for her, four times as many as what she did for Barack Obama. And let me just list, let me just tell you, here's some of the cities that 
Bernie went and held a rally in to get people out to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Lansing, Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Traverse City, Michigan, Madison, Wisconsin, Green Bay, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Kalamazoo, Michigan, Dearborn, Michigan. These names of these states mean anything to you? Yeah. The swing states, the important states to get out the vote. There was Bernie. And these were states that she didn't, she didn't go once to Wisconsin. And Bernie's in Wisconsin a half a dozen times. She didn't go, I think she went once to Michigan. But we begged her to come. We begged the campaign to bring her there. Nope, sorry. But here's Bernie in another half dozen or more cities in Michigan holding rallies to get out the vote for Hillary Clinton. And also other swing states where states that Hillary won, but only by a few thousand votes. Here's Bernie in Duluth, Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Keene, New Hampshire, Nashua, New Hampshire, Scranton, Pennsylvania, Bernie for Hillary, Philly, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Bernie for Hillary. On and on. You should look at this list. I'll post it. There it is. And look at this. I mean, in the week before the election, leading up to the election, November 1st, he's in Plymouth, New Hampshire, Hanover, New Hampshire, Portland, Maine. November 2nd, I mean, these are he's doing like three, four cities a day. November 2nd, he's in Kalamazoo, Michigan, Traverse City, Michigan, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Youngstown, Ohio. On the 3rd, on the November 4th, he's in Iowa City, Iowa, Cedar Falls, Iowa, Omaha, Nebraska. On the 5th, he's in Ames, Iowa. Iowa's going to be very close that year. I mean, some of these, geez, one of these days here, he's doing, he did four cities for Hillary. And yet, how many times have you heard people say he didn't go out and do anything for her? I'm going to say the number again. In 2008, when she lost to Barack Obama in the primaries during the general election, Hillary Clinton did 12 rallies for Barack Obama. In 2016, when Bernie lost to Hillary in the primaries, he went out during the general election before November and did 40 rallies for Hillary Clinton, 40 compared to her 12. And as it turned out, as the statistics showed, that that there were more Hillary voters that ended up voting for McCain in 08 than, than, that, than there were Bernie voters who voted for Trump. In other words, there were more Bernie voters that had voted for Bernie in the primaries, then ended up voting for Hillary in the general. That wasn't the case in the crossover vote in 2008 with people who voted for Hillary in the primaries. You know, by the millions came out and voted for John McCain in the general election. I'm just stating facts. That's the truth. And here's the thing. Bernie did all of that for Hillary to come out, support her, travel the country for her. And he did this after the Podesta letters came out. Do you remember the, the WikiLeaks hacked into and released all those letters from within the Clinton campaign, uh, the Podesta, John Podesta emails, um, where in these emails, when they're talking back and forth about Bernie during the primaries, they refer to him as doofus. Um, they discussed schemes where you would stick the knife in Bernie. Where would you stick the knife in Bernie? In the emails, we learned that Donna Brazil 
part of the DNC, gave um, Hillary the debate questions in the Flint debate between her and Bernie, the mothers of the poisoned children that lined up at the microphone to ask the candidates questions. Bernie didn't know what the questions would be, but Hillary knew uh, because the DNC and CNN had um, given her these um, questions in advance. And when the mothers in Flint, a week, it was about a month later when it was discovered that that Hillary was had these questions, and that these women were just being used as tools, as props, is what they the word they used, props at the debate. When they learned this, I was there. People were not happy. the The turnout in Flint was low. Uh, approximately eight thousand African Americans who had voted for Obama in the previous election stayed home. Did not vote. I know you're saying, oh, well, they shouldn't have done that. They just screwed themselves. Well, go live in Flint for a while. Go live with your poison kids. Um, at some point, you say to yourself, enough is enough. I can't take this anymore. I'm checking out. I'm not participating in the system. And Bernie, Bernie doesn't operate on any kind of anger about this. He doesn't have any vengeance in him. He doesn't say, wow, they screwed me like that. They fixed the debate. They fixed this thing. They did. They planned all these things to try and. Um, they went after his his Jewishness. Was he really Jewish? Remember that. All this stuff to try and smear him, and 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 after all that, and he loses. Um, he does forty cities around the country for her, four times as many that she did for Obama. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, highlighting the debate over the use of our military at the recent Democratic debate. In the Thick discussed the potential impact of voters of color and the way that money in politics helps keep our candidates white. On the Media spoke with Rebecca Traster about the context in which the debate over sexism is happening. Call Your Girlfriend had what I think was an even more nuanced discussion, also building on points made by Rebecca Traster about what we're missing when we only talk about exactly what was said and whether it can be judged as sexist. The Young Turks explained what is incredibly problematic, not to mention hypocritical, about what Hillary Clinton is saying about this year's race. And finally, we just heard Michael Moore on his podcast, Rumble, giving Bernie's history of supporting Clinton during the 20. 16 race. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in episode 1330, the Iran information. I mean, what a, what a phenomenal show you did. Um, I've always, you know, suspected a lot of the stuff that's in there, but to have the facts and to have some of the information, I mean, with the last four presidents of all, you know, bombed them. Like, you know, I mean, it's factual, but you kind of forget after after so many presidencies. Oh yeah, we did do that then. Oh, and we did it again. Oh, I mean, just well done, well done. And so it, it brings to mind, you know, I've often thought of the United States as a bully in the playground, and you can change presidencies and you can get a more progressive movement, but how do you then? recover from that you know if everything changed tomorrow 
you still were the bully in the playground. And how do you get other countries to to change and, and view us differently? How do, how do you play nice again in the playground? Forget the fact that it's going to take an enormous amount to get to that point where we are deserving of that. But then the ramifications of doing that to not be prodded backwards, it, it's just, to me, it's just overwhelming. Anyway, thanks for the episode. It was awesome. Appreciate it. Hey, how's it going? My name's Naomi. I'm coming at you from Canada. I just wanted to say I love, love, love uh, the last two episodes you did on Afghanistan and then Iran. I thought they were so insightful. I really liked uh, what you said at the end of the Iran episode about career politicians and how they get where they are and what influence policy as they go through that. Um, and um, it had me thinking a lot about my country's local politics here in Canada. We're accused a lot of being two-faced, at least our government is. Hassan Minaj put out that video uh, accusing Trudeau of being two-faced. Very quickly later, Trump said the same thing about Trudeau, about something different. But uh, I personally wouldn't call Canada any more or less two-faced than the Democratic Party is right now, or even more two-faced than Obama was, really. I think Trudeau and Obama were really similar in the ways that uh, people elected them expecting a lot more change than they ended up getting. But um, what had me really interested, though, was the fact that I'm involved a lot in student union politics here. Now, in Canada, there's two major student unions, CASA and CFS. The CASA came out of CFS in the 90s as sort of a neoliberal reactionary movement. CFS fights for free tuition and fights imperialism and tries to lower fees for international students, et cetera, et cetera, on the ground stuff. CASA, for more than 30 years, has been peddling the kind of myth that you see people like Pete Buttigieg recycling now. And they're full of people who want to be career politicians. They're full of people who are trying to rise through the ranks of the liberal, maybe even conservative party. Every now and then at my school, I see some NDP guys come in and try and challenge the status quo. But no, it's a huge problem up here that... Uh, Unsurprisingly, it's more student unions. Um, well, not student unions and university classes that will contribute towards molding students from a mindset of wanting to create change in their career to wanting to create change that will build their career, if that makes sense. I guess I just wanted to finish off by asking if you knew that uh, there are any student unions in the U.S. that were kind of helping to pave the way for career politicians. And if you think they might be playing a role in trying to keep that establishment of the Dem Democratic Party, the establishment. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So I have a couple thoughts about these two messages. First, uh, Alan talking about the U.S. being the bully in the playground. I think that's a perfectly good analogy. I might take it a step further, though, because it's not just one bully. It's more like the dynamics of a gang. 
because, you know, as he said, sure, it would be hard to take the steps necessary to stop doing what we're doing and then try to do something else. But an individual bully on the schoolyard could, you know, have some epiphany or realization that he should change his ways. And then he could start doing what any individual person in that situation would need to do and is pretty much the same uh, as what the U.S. needs to do is to start making amends with both words and deeds. It's the it's the classic recipe to right past wrongs. An individual bully can do that. A gang is much harder because if you're an individual and you want to change the ways of the gang or you want to get out of the gang, the dynamics are such that you keep getting pulled back in and the gang will prevent you from changing the direction or changing the actions of the whole. And so the U.S., run by a big, complicated government full of lots of people who are, you know, the most cynical way would be to say that they're benefiting from the status quo. But the kindest way to say it, just that people think this is good. We are a force for good, and we have been and will continue to be a force for good. It doesn't matter what your perspective is on that spectrum. You're going to keep perpetuating the same sorts of actions we've been doing, which people outside of our country usually don't see as being a force for good, depending on the circumstances and details, and there are going to be some caveats in there, obviously. But by and large, the rest of the world sees us as maybe a bully, maybe just a bull in a china shop, best case, yeah, you know, those people who keep trying to do good in the world and screwing up. You know, that that, that would be the most generous way to frame it. So anyway, uh, make amends in both words and deeds. That's the classic recipe. You got to do it over a long period of time so that so it really sinks in. But, you know, we have this problem where half the country doesn't even think that we should apologize for slavery and they know that that happened. So how are we going to convince them to apologize for, like, colonizing the Philippines when they don't even know that that's a thing we did? So, yeah, I, I agree with Alan. It's a little overwhelming and uh, and depressing to think of how long it would take and how hard that's going to be, uh, which sort of makes me think that's why empires generally collapse rather than apologizing for all the harm they've done and uh, making amends and backing away slowly. That's that's generally not not how those stories end. Secondly, Naomi talking about uh, student union politics. I don't I don't have any experience with student union politics specifically. So if you have thoughts on that, I'd love to hear them. Uh, I love the quote about um, that some people want to create change with their careers while others look to make the sort of change that will help build their career. That That's a great way to describe that dynamic that inevitably is created. So I, I said I don't have experience with student unions in particular, but I do have some experience with an organization not related to a school, but just a nonprofit organization that probably had some you know, major funding from places I shudder to think where, but, you know, and then also some internal fundraising. And I was sort of hooked up with them about 10 years ago and had nice things to say about them. And everyone who I met there was very nice. It was when I I, I moved to a new town and a guy got in touch. I honestly can't remember 
how he, he like learned that I was in town or got, got in touch. I assume through the show somehow, or a friend of a friend can't remember. So the guy gets in touch sort of out of the blue and invites me to lunch and just like, Hey, you know, young progressives in, in town, like let we should, we should know each other. So he's very, very nice, very welcoming, very charismatic guy. And just like wanted to learn my story and, you know, and then invited me like, Hey, come and meet these other people who were doing good things in town. And, and so that's how I got invited to this group, which turned out to be sort of the core of this organization that was, it, it was sort of like half educational curriculum. You like go through a course kind of to learn concrete skills, you know, life skills and, and, and strategies to be your best self do as much good as you can the idea being let's let's help build tomorrow's leaders by giving them the tools they need to be the best they can be because they want to go on and do good things in the world so it made sense for me to sort of plug into this and so i said that was half of it and the other has just that it was networking you know that you get to network with the other people in the class and then year after year there would be alumni and and so it sort of builds on itself and becomes one big network and and so you know we'd go through this curriculum with sort of local expert speakers probably once a month or twice a month or something like that you know we'd go and hang out for half a afternoon on a weekend sort of go through this coursework and have some, you know, a little bit of reading and, and homework and that sort of thing. And so, you know, it was a perfectly good idea, but I started to notice that there was something a little off and I, it took me a long time to put my finger on it. But the way I started describing it to people was, was with how people dressed, you know, the concept of, you know, dress for the job you want. Well, where I feel most comfortable is dressing in clothes that you would wear like to a protest M meaning you know it doesn't have to have a bunch of inflammatory writing on it i just mean casual you, you don't necessarily need to get dressed up like you're going to your office job if you're going to go to a protest whereas the other people in this organization wore a lot of vests that's what i i really noticed i don't think i've ever worn uh, or owned a dress vest in my life and and these guys a lot of them had vests and so they were dressing like their goal was to be a congressional staffer which i think is probably true and there's nothing inherently wrong with being a congressional staffer and aoc and ilhan omar have congressional staffers they're probably very radical people who uh, who i would love to hang out with but that seems to not be the direction people in this group were going. And so a couple stick out in my mind. One, at, at some point in some conversation, you know, we're talking about, you know, how do we see our future? What, what do we want to do to create positive change in the world? And one guy said that he wanted to be a hedge fund manager so that he could get rich and then donate a lot of money to progressive causes, which is classic, right? <laughs> like I, I knew that that was not a good idea, and that was way, way before I learned the structural problems with philanthropy or the structural problems with Democratic Party supporting rich people who want to do good as long as they get to keep all of their money and power and influence. Like, I want to help other people, but I don't want to give away any of my privilege. This guy, I mean, 
he wasn't even rich and privileged. I think he was pretty privileged, but he wasn't even fabulously wealthy yet. And he already had that as his goal. And then there was another guy that, that really stuck out to me. It was, it was the same guy who invited me to lunch the first time. He became one of our expert speakers, you know, lo- local expert, given some concrete advice. And he told his story about the, you know, the goal that he had. And he basically said that his desire was to be a power broker. He didn't want to be a politician. He didn't necessarily even want to work for a politician. He wanted to be the guy who knows everyone and can make connections and can use those connections through him as a way to have power and influence for himself. And he goes on to describe in meticulous detail the strategies that he uses to make as many connections as he can to turn that into personal power. And he describes reaching out to people and inviting them to lunch and all of his tried and true scientifically tested methods to be charismatic, including making sure to ask people, you know, about themselves and, you know, keep the topic on them and what they want and making sure to sort of just casually like, pat him on the shoulder and make physical contact to create this emotional bond. And I just thought, holy shit, I was just part of his plan that whole time to whatever degree there was legitimate interest in doing good for the world and wanting to help individual people. Like, I'm not saying that wasn't there, but It felt so dirty to have clearly been part of his grand scheme to gain personal power by getting to know people and using psychological tools to get close to them, which is exactly what he did to me. And it worked. So eventually I just sort of backed away and and, uh, stopped responding to messages I got from that organization. But. To put it in in more concrete terms, they were definitely extremely pro-Democratic Party. Progressive ideas and the goals of the party seemed to be secondary. These were clearly people being trained to be partisans first and bringers of change second, unfortunately. So that's my experience with an organization like that. If you have any of your own that contact you have had or currently have with in your organization and you want to share your thoughts, please do keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
Now for today's impeachment update via Limerick. I've got two for you, both on John Bolton and the news surrounding him from at Liberix on Twitter. They write, the Prez is a common, the Prez is a con man and crook. John Bolton explains in his book, the details he's spilt establishes, the details he's spilt establish Trump's guilt. So most of the jurors won't look. And at Limericking writes, a witness behind all the spin saw high misdemeanors begin. He then made the call to stand and tell all, provided he first could cash in.